0: Father, thank you for our morning together. We pray, O oh Lord, that as we open your word and as we are together in fellowship, that, that you would be with us and that you would, um, you would make us more like your son Jesus. Um, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to see our lives and the world that you have, um, you have given us to live in from the perspective of you enthroned in heaven. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Um, how many of you have been to the Grand Canyon before, Just out of curiosity? Been to the Grand Canyon before? Okay. Um, have you ever tried to describe the Grand Canyon to someone who's never been? Maybe before? So I'm one of the people, I've never, I've never seen it in person, but I've had friends tell me about it, right? And in, inevitably the conversation always goes like this, you know, it's so big, it's so deep, it's so beautiful, they'll describe some of the rock formations or sort of how it looks against the horizon, but the conversation always tends to end this way. You know, you really have to just sort of see it for yourself in person. That's the only way to explain it. You gotta go, you gotta stand on the edge, and you gotta experience it for yourself in person. Now, I've seen a picture of the Grand Canyon. Postcards, whatever else, I've flown over it in an airplane, amazing. But still, it's a tall order for someone who's been there to translate their experience of standing on the precipice and looking over it to someone like me who's never seen it in person. Now, for those of you who've been to the Grand Canyon before, can you imagine trying to explain the experience of what you saw and how you felt and um, what it was like for you to someone who doesn't even have a concept of a canyon? Let's Take someone who's live their whole lives on a remote island in the Pacific Ocean okay and all they've seen by comparison is how some streams move through the sand when it rains and go to the ocean. Can you imagine trying to explain to make them understand what it feels like to stand on the precipice of the Grand Canyon, how it feels, how it sounds, how, how, how it looks. Can you imagine trying to explain that to them? How hard would that be, right? I say that because I really want you to appreciate the task that John has before him here in Revelation 4. Right? Um, In Revelation 4, John is lifted up into, he says, the throne room of heaven. He's lifted up into the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum, the place where God himself dwells. And he is tasked with looking upon the scene... And trying to translate it back to us, knowing that we have never seen anything like it or, or have concepts that really translate into what he is seeing for himself. And don't you just get the sense that, I don't know, I mean, it doesn't say this, I just imagine if I were John standing there, I'd want to say, look, I'm doing the best I can here, people. You know, really to appreciate this, you've just got to, you've really got to see it for yourself. And I want to start here this morning because we're going to try our best in our imagination to go with John into heaven and to walk with him as he walks there. And to see what he sees and to feel what he feels. But I want want to do so with this disclaimer. This is far more immense and intense than our imaginations can likely reach. Just want you to keep that in mind as we get a taste of heaven itself as we go with John. And to remember that as we hear Him report back to us what one day we will all see in person, every one of us, as we stand before the throne of God. So here's a little exercise for you as we read the passage this morning. I, I really want you to try your best with you know just a minor amount of coffee so far in your system. I know you're trying to wake up. 7 a.m. It's Dallas, Texas. It's a Tuesday morning. I want you to try your best to imagine what John sees and feels and hears. Go with him. Okay? I'm going to read the passage now. I'm going to read it slowly so you can try to take it in as much as possible. If you need to close your eyes and do that better just so you can focus, no one will think worse of you. Okay? So let me read the passage for us and try to get a sense of the scene that John wants us to see as he goes to heaven himself. John writes, Revelation 4, After this I looked, And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, Two things for us this morning. The first thing is this, I, I just want us to process what we just heard together. I wanna walk, walk through the vision together and process what you see and hear and feel in the vision. And the second thing is this, question. What happens to us as men when this scene, the scene of God enthroned, becomes the operative reality for how we live life? What happens when we look at this scene and say this is true? in all of reality. This is the center of truth and what is real in our world that we see and what we don't see. What can we expect to happen in our lives? So first of all, the vision. And I want you to notice in the vision that the vision begins with two points of visual focus. Here's where we see that. You see it whenever John himself writes the word behold. So this happens a lot in the New Testament. You see the word behold and the word behold is is, is someone pointing and saying don't miss this. Look at this. Focus on it. Gaze upon it. Two, two times that John writes that. Two points of focus in the vision this morning. The first time he says it is in verse 1. He says behold, and what, he, what does he want you to focus on? You see that? Behold there is a door standing open in heaven. Now I think it's easy to read and to look over that. But you wouldn't read and look over it um, casually if you were Jewish because heaven wasn't an open invitation (laughs) um, in the Old Testament, right? Um, The Old Testament tells us that there there were places where there was actually a copy present on earth of what heaven was like. And one of those places was in the tabernacle, in the temple, and there was a room in the tabernacle and in the temple called the Holy of Holies. It was the inner sanctum supposed to be a copy of the very throne room of heaven. And the way into that room was veiled, heavily veiled, which meant that the door was shut and only one man, the high priest, on one day out of the entire year, and only with the appropriate blood, the appropriate sacrifice could ever enter into that room. And here is a voice inviting John, a sinner, And men like us, sinners, to come into the room itself. The door is open. And I just want you to notice, Paul can talk more about this next week because it comes up more in chapter 5. Who is the voice that invites John into heaven? One like a trumpet. Well, do you remember who that was in chapter 1? It's Jesus. Jesus is the one that takes this sinner John into heaven with him. Extremely important. The way there is by invitation from this person. We'll talk more about that next week. That's the first point of of focus. The second point of visual focus is what? So John is lifted up into heaven. Not sure really how that works, by the way, it just says he was in the spirit. I don't know if he was beamed up or heaven came down or what happened, but somehow he, he finds himself in heaven and he says, behold, look, pay attention, a throne. Behold a throne. This is important because this throne is where you will find yourself and ourselves as we continue in Revelation for Tuesday mornings to come. This throne is the center of the rest of John's vision. John wants you to see above all else that there is in heaven a throne. Now what else do you see as you look upon the throne? Well first I just want you to notice that the first thing he wants you to see is the one who is seated upon the throne. He doesn't name him there. But he says there's one seated upon the throne. And how does he describe the one seated upon the throne? He says he looks like what? What does he say? Jasper and Carnelian. And this is where I think you have to appreciate a little bit the task of John. He's probably saying like, you know, I'm trying my best here. You know, this is what I got. So whenever, heaven, whenever the Bible describes something beautiful, it almost always uses um, gemstones or jewels. You'll see it at the end of Revelation 2 when it describes the heavenly city. But jasper and carnelian are particularly interesting because of what they look like. So, so commentators tell us that jasper is this stone that, um, that is multicolored, translucent. The colors sort of shift and they go from purple and rose and red and gold and blue and green, all in one stone. So the way that I imagine this is sort of like, have you ever seen at least a picture of the northern lights? How the colors shift, right? Right? Well, imagine a more intense and crisper vision of this, right? That's what he's saying. Then he uses the the stone carnelian, and carnelian was a stone that um, uh, was reddish that had a fiery radiance to it. So all these shifting colors, these crisp shifting colors, and this fiery radiance. What is John trying to teach us about the one who is seated on the throne? He's saying that he is unrivaled in his beauty. He is when you look upon him, he is overwhelmingly stunning. What I want you to see here as men, we need to hear this that it's not just that truth is important in heaven. It's not just that righteousness is important in heaven, beauty is important to God. God himself is beautiful to gaze upon. David says it, and I think it's Psalm 27, the one thing I seek is to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to look at Him, and to be overwhelmingly stunned by who He is. What else does he say? He says, look, I also notice that coming from the throne, as I'm looking upon this beauty, there's lightning and thunder. Has anyone ever been close to lightning before? Like, really close. Like, you, not in the distance, you kind of saw it in the field, or but like, beside your house. Or driving along the highway and it hits at a field beside you? How'd you feel? It's pretty pretty terrifying, isn't it? I mean, it's terrifying. So John is is seeing at the same time this picture of beauty and lightning and thunder all around the throne. Immense power, immense beauty, all at the same time. So who else is there? Who else does John see? Well, let let me kind of situate this again. So the throne is the center of the vision. And you'll notice that everything... If you use your imagination here, and and remember that that chapter 5 is an extension of this as well. So we'll talk about that next week. But everything lives in concentric circles around the throne. Okay? So until, by chapter 5, all of creation is coordinated, belongs somewhere around the throne. Everything that's ever been made belongs coordinated around the throne of God. That's what 4 and 5 is going to tell us. But the first thing that John sees, or he says he sees around there, is what? The twenty-four elders. Twenty-four elders. Who were they? We don't know. Okay? But most likely, whenever that that word is used, it's the word presbytos, presbyterios. It means elder in other places. It's basically those who have been given power to rule over spiritual matters. So what most commentators think is these twenty-four elders, and twenty-four is a significant number, You have the number 12 in the Bible, remember that? 12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. Here is 2 times 12, the fullness of heavenly power. What you have here is the, the session in heaven. These are the elders who ruled over all the angelic hosts in heaven. And I just want you to see what they do, what their primary task is as they gather as a session. It is not to discuss business. What is the primary task of the heavenly session when they gather together? It is to worship and adore God. They, they, they take their crowns, all the authority and responsibility given to them, and they together celebrate Him and throw their crowns down at the feet of the One who is immensely beautiful. To be a good ruler, to be a good authority, this is what, this is what we do. We give back to God the authority He's given us and worship in celebration and we submit ourselves to Him. Okay, the elders. Here's the fun part now, who else is there? This is what y'all wanted to know anyway, right? Who else is there? Can you imagine John reporting back, okay John, you went to heaven, who'd you see? Well, you know, I saw the the 24 elders were there, the leaders of the angelic host, the people, you know, what you'd expect. Uh, God was there, the one enthroned, He was like Jasper and Carnelian. Oh, and yeah, there were those four creatures there, right? you know the ones that have eyes all over their body that have six wings and one of them kinda has a a head that's not an ox but like an ox and one like a lion and one like a man and one like an eagle in flight with eyes all over before and backward and they're tall and they're all around oh you know what I mean right? no (laughs) you have no idea Um, would you say that your experience, and imagine John too, your experience with looking at these creatures is a very strange one, right? And it's funny that the other, there are two other people in Scripture, Ezekiel and Isaiah, who write about their experience in seeing the throne room opened up to them, and they also describe creatures that are sort of similar to this. So, so what is the effect on us of having John describe these creatures that are alien and otherworldly who are worshiping at the very center of the throne? They're the ones that are closest to the throne. What do you think the impact is supposed to be on us? Well, I heard a pastor put it this way. It was really helpful for me. He said, look, and he started out this way. I'm not an alien guy, okay? I'm not a guy who gets excited about Area 51, conspiracy theories. I don't believe in aliens. But just imagine with me, what if, what if something alien, what if something powerful, what if something otherworldly showed up this morning in downtown Dallas, Texas? Let's put it beside the crescent, okay? As tall as the crescent. And we're standing up at this thing with full of eyes, with a head like an ox, right? In the middle of downtown Dallas. And we're waiting in sort of terror to, to sort of see what he does next. And his first words are this I love and trust the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Would that sort of up the ante for you a little bit, you think, in your faith? (laughs) Think so? uh, um, Would that bring a little bit of confirmation in the places of doubt and apathy in your own life? I mean, don't don't you think, like, if you saw a creature like this in person, you'd say, you know what? Good enough for him. Good enough for me. I'm in, you know? So the effect of these strange creatures, right, who are around the throne and who are extolling the holiness of God. They are celebrating the otherworldliness of God in their own otherworldliness. Is to make us, as men, pause and say, you know what? Maybe the Lord Himself is bigger and more glorious and more transcendent than I've considered. Maybe God has been way, way, way too small in my own imagination. And really, man, if I I could sort of leave you with something this morning, that's the point of the scene as a whole. Do you notice that in the scene, God says nothing? Doesn't utter a word the whole time. It is all of creation. It is the majesty of everything that he has made, the manifold witness of the world that celebrates his authority and power and beauty. So here's a question for you. Okay? We've, We've tried our best to walk through the scene in chapter four. You'll get more of the scene next week in chapter five. If you had to call a friend... You were along with John, you had to call a friend in a few words, you had to describe how you felt in taking the scene. What would be the words you would use? Just think about that for a moment. What words would you use to describe what it felt like for you to stand in the presence of God? I wrote down some words. I thought the word overwhelming. I think the scene feels overwhelming to me. It does feel beautiful, it feels absolutely strange. There are times when it feels terrifying. And I also wrote this, it feels to me comforting, but not in a way that is ever comfortable. It is comforting in a way that says, you know what, there is something bigger out here than my own anxieties, and my problems, and my day-to-day fears, and that thing is in complete control, but it's kind of scary at the same time, because I see a throne and I'm not on it. And I think what I'd like for you to, to see this morning is that there really is a range of emotion that accompanies being in the presence of God. And that range of emotion should be reflective, in how, reflected excuse me, in how we walk with God as disciples right now. That walking with Him in our own lives and our day-to-day should feel a little bit mysterious. That it should feel strange. That it should feel beautiful. A little scary. Perhaps comforting, but not in a way that ever makes us feel comfortable. And more than anything else that we've seen from this scene is that loving and worshiping God, listen to me, involves the displacement of self from the center of reality. John says, behold, here is a throne, and you are not on it. <laughs> behold a throne, and you are not sitting on it. But the one who is sitting on it is capable He is capable of ruling over the entirety of your anxieties and fears and problems and day-to-day activities, the entirety of the cosmos. Will you worship him with me? That's the invitation. Question this morning, what happens now if we are to embrace this as the center of our reality, when this scene becomes operative for us as men as we move out? Let me give you three things. There are more that you could think of. Maybe you'll do that around your table this morning. Let me give you three things that would be true of us, when God is big, that is to say, when He is enthroned in the center of our own lives. Number one is this, when God is big, you'll find that you actually care more about creation, not less, okay? When God is big, you will actually care more about His creation and not less. What do I mean? Uh, There is a strand of Christian piety Listen to me, there's a strand of Christian piety that I think is misleading. Maybe you've encountered it before, maybe not. That strand says that the beauty and grandeur of God, as God becomes more important to you, as his beauty grows in your own imagination, in your own heart, then you will actually care less about the things of this world. So, for example, take the song. I'm not trying to pick on the song if this is your favorite, I'm sorry. My seminary professor always hated this song. That's what made me think of it. It's it's the song "Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus." You know, you've heard the song before. "Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus," beautiful song. Look full in His wonderful face, and what the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, I get the, I get the you know good song. What the writer is trying to communicate is that your perspective will change. You'll care more about him than you will the other things, but I just want you to see in Revelation, creation never dims. It never dims in the light of who Jesus is. In fact, what creation does is it's infused with meaning and purpose and and possibility as it's coordinated around the throne of God. And what I want you to see is that as, as God becomes bigger to you, you will actually care more about the world. You'll care more about the environment. You'll care more about your friendships and about your neighborhoods and about your work and about the strangers that you meet in passing because everything on heaven and earth was made to participate in the worship of God. And you'll care about that. You'll care about the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. You'll care about about all those things being coordinated and being offered up in praise to God. In other words, when God is big, your ordinary life will become more infused with meaning and beauty and purpose, not less. Not less. That's number one. Number two, when God is big, imposters are exposed. Okay? When God is big, imposters in our lives get exposed. here's what I mean. So, um, so, you know, John is writing this, the, the original sort of uh, audience are these seven churches that live in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, when Vespian became emperor in 69 AD, do you know how all the cities came and celebrated his coronation? They came around him and they took wreaths and they threw wreaths at his feet, just like in the vision. Uh, when Domitian became emperor, later on at the end of the first century, he had his subjects address him as my Lord and my God, just like in the vision. In other words, when the seven churches heard this scene reported by John, what they heard was not only a call to worship the one true God, at the same time they heard a call to reject everything and everyone that would make a similar claim in their lives. So when God is big, when he is enthroned, when we see him for who he is, all the imposters, all the false gods Clearly are exposed for how they present themselves to us, we begin to get a, be- a very clear vision of how false gods present themselves to us in our lives. So, for example, how money, which is a good thing when coordinated in worship to God, how money can present itself to us as the one who can ultimately make us secure. How romance, a good thing, how work, a good thing. How work can present itself to us as the, as the thing that can ultimately affirm us and create our identities as men. How a uh, self, a good thing, your self is a good thing. How self is the one who can claim the authority to command us and to justify our loves and our desires and our, our actions. How governors or policies or political parties can claim the authority to save us from the bad future, wherever the future's going that's bad. I just want you to see that whenever God is big, you'll notice how often the imposters try and claim the prerogatives and priorities, the glory and honor and power that belong only to Him. And you'll be able to resist those lies. You'll you'll see them and resist them more readily. That's number two, and finally this, and I hope this is most encouraging to you this morning, it's this, when God is big, when he is enthroned, you can exhale, and you are finally free to be yourself. When God is enthroned, you'll be able to exhale, and you will finally be free to be who you were made to be. There's a song that, um, I don't know what it says about me, but that, that comes across, uh, uh, um, that I've come across a, a couple of playlists. I, I'm on Apple Music, okay, so I, I make no claim to be the purveyor or gatekeeper to cool music. I'm a I'm a function of algorithms. I do whatever the algorithms tell me that I should like. So, um, The song is written and recorded by a a Swedish songwriter who performs under the stage name The Tallest Man on Earth. Some of you heard uh, uh, of him before. And the song is called The Gardener. The Gardener. And the lyrics and music are are very compelling. And uh, it basically goes like this. The song is about a man who falls in love. And in the background of him falling in love, loving this woman, is this perpetual fear that lives inside of him. That one day, this woman, his beloved, will finally discover who he really is and thus no longer love him in return. So the song is about the journey that he takes to stay the tallest man in her eyes. That's the refrain. To say the tallest man in your eyes, babe, repeated over and over and over again. So what do you think he has to do in order to stay the tallest man in her eyes? Well, the song's called The Gardener, and the lyrics suggest he has to become a gardener. Basically, what he has to do is he has to, in his own garden, he has to bury all the witnesses and evidence and people that can expose him for the small man that he really is. And it's a beautiful song. It's compelling because it's all about the effort that is needed to sustain an image in order for a man... To be really loved. Now I think that we all feel the general pull of that message. That we all feel the general pull to bend the evidence of who we really are. In order to become the tallest man in someone's eyes. So what would the throne in Revelation say to us in response? How would it counsel us in response to that pull, that effort? It tells you this morning that you can stop. That you can stop trying to become the tallest man in anyone's eyes. You can give up on the charade. Because you were never created to be the tallest man in the eyes of your children. You were never made to be the tallest man in the eyes of your wife, in the eyes of your colleagues with whom you work in the industry that you work in, in the eyes of your business, in the eyes of your friends, in the eyes of your neighbors. What it says instead, the throne tells you that that what your children, what your wife, what your friends need most is not to see you become the tallest man in their eyes, but instead to become the one who was made to be dependent in worship upon God. And that's what our loved ones need most from us. Not an elaborate scheme to stay big, but a willingness to be appropriately small so that God is big. And if the Lord himself is the center of your reality you no longer have to work to sustain the lie that you can be. That's important. If God is the center of your reality, you don't have to work any longer to sustain the lie that you can be at the center of it all, which means that you can rest and you can really be free to be who you really are, which is a man. You're a man with incredible value who is made in the image of God to do the work that God has given you to do and praise to him. And no more. No more. If I could leave you with two things this week to meditate on, two things to look at, it would just be this. Behold, there is a door in heaven that is open. And behold, the first thing that you'll see when you get there is that there is a throne and God is on it and not us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that Um, That the throne would be alive to us, that it would become operative, that you would relieve us of um, the efforts that we make to sustain or to try to be on the throne of our own lives. And we pray, Father, that you would free us to do the work that you've given us to do in praise to you, um, that you would free us to worship you, Lord, that you would give us faith and trust, um, Father, as the creatures exhibit in heaven. We pray for that. We pray that we would adore you and see you as beautiful and believable. In Jesus' name, amen.